The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hey, it's CNBC producer Katie Kramer here, and I want to tell you about a new CNBC podcast called The News with Shepard Smith. Every evening, the team brings you deep, nonpartisan news coverage and perspective on the day's most important stories. I'm going to share with you now today's episode of The News with Shepard Smith, but be sure to subscribe to the podcast today. Good evening. I'm Shepard Smith on CNBC, and this is The News. And right now on a brand new newscast, we'd normally play the best sound and video from the debate, right? That's the lead, the back and forth from the president and the man who wants to replace him. And then we show and tell you what else we face as a nation, because there's a lot. That produced open, as we call it. About a minute. It's fast. There's music. It's compelling and rich with emotion. And that was our plan. That's what we'll usually do. But as it turns out in this moment, that's just the noise. You've heard it. And we need to cut through it. You've told us what you think about the debate. We have CNBC overnight polls just in and we'll share. Truth is, there's never been such a thing as last night. A first official introduction of the two candidates from the Committee on Presidential Debates follows rules. It's dignified, democratic, structured, American. Not last night. That debate cannot be measured by traditional X's and O's, regardless of how you'll vote. We will endeavor this hour to draw distinctions between the two candidates on the issues. COVID, the economy, racial injustice, social unrest, governance, education, and so much more. We'll do that as best we can based on what last night's event offered up. But let's mark this moment. Last night, the president called into question the heart of our democracy, the peaceful transition of power. Is there assurance that it'll happen? Asked to give, give it, the president declined and openly sowed the seeds of distrust in the outcome. If there's no clear winner on election night, what's the process? What does the Constitution say? We'll report on that. And our presidential historian will offer clarity, perspective. In the debate, the president told a group of white supremacists, some of whom stood by those in Charlottesville with their torches, to stand back and stand by. Joe Biden declared the duly elected president of the United States unfit to lead, called him a racist, a liar, a clown, and told him to shut up. We've never seen any of this, not in America. But from this, we march toward the vote. And tonight, we'll lay out the facts to the best of our ability in context and with perspective. First up, election integrity and where we stand. Every indication is there has been no widespread voter fraud, not in America. And there's nothing to indicate there may be a problem this time. So says the FBI director himself. But here's the president. As far as the ballots are concerned, it's a disaster. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. Did you see what's going on? Take a look at West Virginia mailmen selling the ballots. They're being sold. They're being dumped in rivers. This is a horrible thing for our country. There is no, this is not, there is no this is not going to end well. NBC News and CNBC have seen no evidence to back up the president's claims. And he's offered nothing of substance. CNBC's Eamon Javers looked into whether there are any legitimate threats to the election integrity. And he's live with us now. Eamon, good evening. Yeah, Shep, good evening to you. You know, last night wasn't the first time the president has tried to sow doubts about the validity of this election. He's been doing that now for months and sometimes on a daily basis. The president's been saying that mail-in ballots are susceptible to fraud from foreign governments, that the tally of the voting could ultimately take too long. And in the end of the day, that the result of this election might never be accurately determined. This is what we're going to get into, and it's going to be a disaster. And it's going to be thought of very poorly. It's going to hurt our country. It will be a tremendous embarrassment to our country. It'll go on forever, and you'll never know who won. 
They know it's going to there are going to be millions of missing ballots or tremendous numbers of missing ballots. You could be talking about large percentages of these ballots are going to be missing. There's going to be fraud. It's a disaster. People across the country already sending in their votes by mail, and election experts say it's a safe way to vote because of security measures like these in New Mexico, a line for your signature and a box for the last four digits of your social security number. Just a couple of hours ago, I spoke to New Mexico's Secretary of State. There's no threat to mail-in ballots uh, from really any source. And in fact, mail-in ballots are the safest and most secure way in many cases to cast your vote this year in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, mail-in ballots uh, have been used, of course, in different ways in different states, but for decades now as a safe, secure way for folks to vote and make their voices heard in our democracy. And Shep, in New Mexico, they say they saw a spike in mail-in balloting during the primary season earlier this year. They say there was some confusion among voters about how to execute those ballots. And they say they've streamlined that process now and they're ready for Election Day, Shep. All right. That's that's uh, election fraud. What about cyber threats? How real and how worried? You know, that is one area where election observers say there are some concerns going into this election, particularly on the area of ransomware. Now, that's when a hacker reaches in and steals the data out of a company or a government database and doesn't give it up until they get paid a bribe. That's one area that observers are concerned about. The other one is social media hacking, when hackers steal the accounts of high-profile people and post tweets or things on Facebook that make it look like something is happening that's not really actually happening. That could sow some confusion on Election Day, and officials say they're on the lookout for both of those, Shep. Eamon Javers, live tonight. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right wing problem. Did you hear that? The Proud Boys, the president telling them stand back and stand by. The Proud Boys are what the Anti-Defamation League calls a violent, nationalistic, Islamophobic, transphobic, misogynistic, anti-immigration hate group. As I mentioned, some of them were in Charlottesville, where President Trump said there were very fine people on both sides before later backtracking. Now he's doing the same on the Proud Boys this afternoon, claiming ignorance. I don't know who the Proud Boys are. I mean, you'll have to give me a definition because I really don't know who they are. I can only say they have to stand down, let law enforcement do their work. So, Mr. President, did you misspeak when you said stand by? That's my, my first question. You Just stand by. Look. Law enforcement will do their work. They're going to stand down. They have to stand down. Everybody, they have to stand, whatever group you're talking about. That happened after there'd been calls last night and all morning into the early afternoon for the president to clarify what he had said. And there it is. But the group was already celebrating the Proud Boys and living off his words from the debate. A New York Times correspondent tweeted an updated logo of the Proud Boys. Look at this. This is the one they're using. With the president's words emblazoned like a slogan, stand back, stand by. Today, a reporter asked Vice President Joe Biden what he thought about the Proud Boys using the president's word as a rallying cry. Look. My message to the Proud Boys and every other white supremacist group is cease and desist. That's not who we are. This is not who we are as Americans. CNBC's Frank Holland with us now. Tell, tell us more about the Proud Boys, what they espouse what they advocate, where they come from. Well, Shep, the Proud Boys are an all-male hate group that was formed during the 2016 presidential campaign. Today, experts say they were given a big win by the winner of that election, President Donald Trump. Violence involving the Proud Boys and leftist Antifa in Portland, Oregon in recent weeks represent groups who are convinced they are battling for the future of America. Last night, the Proud Boys gaining what experts say is a powerful weapon, recognition from the president. 
getting a shout out on this global forum is really going to help the Proud Boys grow their numbers and it's going to mobilize them further. The Southern Poverty Law Center tracks hate groups and sees the current polarized political environment as a breeding ground for the Proud Boys and as well Antifa, which also engages in violence. They are violent and they, you know, they do stupid stuff. They view themselves to be fighting back against this. Founded in 2016, the Proud Boys bring in new members with a four-step initiation. According to NBC News, the process includes being assaulted by fellow members while naming breakfast cereals, getting a tattoo, and limiting masturbation. This is not sophisticated, but it's grown increasingly violent. In fact, step four of this initiation is to go commit an act for the cause. They're rooted in violence. They're rooted in hatred. Rashad Brackney is the chief of police in Charlottesville, Virginia, the site of a deadly confrontation between right and left-wing groups three years ago. She says the president's refusal to denounce white supremacy could have dangerous consequences. It emboldens people um, to say that we will be immune from a system um, of, of accountability because we have the backing at the highest level. And Shep, as you show, the Proud Boys are selling T-shirts with the president's words, stand back and stand by. Experts say they get the majority of their funding from selling merchandise. The president's words potentially adding manpower and money to their cause. Back over to you. Frank Holland live in the CNBC newsroom. So who won? Well, both campaigns say their candidate had the better night. Both sides claiming a win, as happens after most debates. But only one opinion matters, and that's yours. We have two reporters getting reactions in the battleground states, Dasha Burns in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But first, Shaq Brewster live in Minneapolis. Shaq, that city's still hurting after the death of George Floyd. How did this conversation about race play there? That's right, Shep. Out of the many conversations I've had with people here in Minneapolis since last night's debate, one that stuck out to me was one with Mr. Jamar Nelson. He's an anti-violence activist here in Minneapolis who's been critical of the city council's push to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department, saying it's contributed to an uptick in violence. Well, he said President Trump missed out on a golden opportunity when he refused to condemn white supremacy unequivocally. He said it was like a gut punch to him. You know, Minneapolis is a city very much still healing since the death of George Floyd. There are still tributes all around. The violence and destruction from the protests afterwards are still apparent. They wanted to hear more from the president. Shaq Brewster live in Minneapolis. Thanks. The president won Michigan by fewer than 11,000 votes in 2016. So how Michiganders react matters to both candidates in a big way. Dasha Burns live in Grand Rapids. Dasha, you heard from voters on both sides, a suburban mom, uh, the other a construction project manager. Both went for President Trump in 2016. Where are they now? Shep, I first met both of these voters last November, and back then, Katie Morris, mom of two, told me she regretted voting for Donald Trump, but she wasn't sure she could vote for a Democrat, thought the party had gone too far left. Well, now she is all in on Joe Biden. She said at last night's debate he was trying to speak to moderate voters like her, whereas Trump was trying to rile up his base. Now, on the other hand, Jerry Stepanovich, our other voter, he is still undecided. He was a Trump supporter. Now he's more of a skeptic, but he is still not sure what to do. He was hoping that last night's debate would help clarify things. He said it did the opposite. He told me he thought it was two kids in a sandbox fighting over a shovel. That is what he saw last night. Shep. Dasha Burns live in Grand Rapids. Sometimes history helps us make sense of what's happening right now. And historians can help us see the forest for the trees now and then. Michael Beschloss has written 10 books on the presidency. He's NBC News presidential historian. He's here to give us context. Michael, good evening and thanks. Thanks. Delighted to be with you. Context. Is there any historical reference that gives us insight on what happens last night? Anything like that ever before? I wish I could give you one, Shep, but you go through all of history. You'll never find a fall presidential debate that got this far out of control. President Trump obviously went into this thinking that, you know, he would try to dominate and speak through Joe Biden. And the result was that a lot of what Biden said was drowned out. Chris Wallace, whom you and I both know, was put in a very difficult position because the rules did not allow him to turn off anyone's microphone. Around the world, is there an analogy? Is there a comparison to another world leader acting in this way? 
Well, I think it it, it begins to resemble the kind of countries that we Americans usually lecture to and say, your political system should be more like ours. Usually we point to our presidential debates and say, we are so democratic, small d, that we've got debates where an incumbent president goes in speaking uh, against, uh, speaking with his rival, and the rival criticizes him to his face. Where else but America would that happen? It really didn't happen enough last night. Michael Beschloss, live tonight. Michael, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sorry for the audio. Work from home. Thank you. Everyone understands that. In the end, what you think, what you decide is what matters. That's it. You told us what's most important. We'll drill down on those issues in our scientific poll results. Did anything change after last night for you? You gave us answers. But first, we asked, was the debate useful? Should there be more? 55% said yes. Bring it on. But we also asked, did watching the presidential debate make you feel proud to be an American? 77% said no. The rest of the polls, as the first, the news, rolls on in 60 seconds. The facts, the truth, the news with Shepard Smith, back in 60 seconds. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The presidential debate was chaotic, no doubt, so much so that the nonprofit group that runs the debates announced this afternoon it will be changing the rules going forward to ensure more orderly discussions, as it put it. The next debate is scheduled to have a town hall format in two weeks. Despite it all, the candidates did get to the issues, and we're going to focus on the ones you've told us matter the most in our CNBC Change Research poll. First up, COVID-19. We'll hear from both candidates. And then from you. He wants to shut down the country. We just went through it. We had to because we didn't know anything about the disease. Now we found that elderly people with heart problems and uh, diabetes and different problems are very, very vulnerable. We learned a lot. Young children aren't. Uh, Even younger people aren't. We've learned a lot. But he wants to shut it down. More people will be hurt. By continuing, if you look at Pennsylvania, if you look at certain states that have been shut down, they have Democrat governors all. One of the reasons they're shut down is because they want to keep it shut down until after the election. COVID-19, not exactly laying out a plan, but he did lay blame for where we are now. Joe Biden put the blame on the president himself. He waited and waited and waited. He still doesn't have a plan. I laid out back in March exactly what we should be doing. And I laid out again in July what we should be doing. We should be providing all the protective gear possible. We should be providing the money the House has passed in order to be able to go out and get people the help they need to keep their businesses open. Open schools that cost a lot of money. You should get out of your bunker and get out of the sand trap and get in in your golf course and go in the Oval Office and bring together the Democrats and Republicans and fund what needs to be done now to save lives. It was a bit of a dogfight. We did hear some scientific polling around here of likely voters nationwide on this subject. And we asked if the debate or after the debate, who do you believe would do a better job keeping us all safe from COVID-19? Fifty six percent of those surveyed said Joe Biden. Forty four percent said President Trump. Let's dig into those numbers. Who cares the most and where are they? NBC News national political correspondent Steve Kornacki is with us diving into that data. Steve on COVID. What'd you find? Yeah, what's really interesting, Shep, I think, on this question is voters over 65, senior citizens, when you ask them that question, who do you think would keep us safe better? Look at that. Almost two-thirds there say Biden and not Trump. One of the stories of this election, Trump won senior citizens big in 2016. He trails with them this year. This might be one of the big reasons why. Well, Steve, next issue, candidates debated the Supreme Court. Who should get to choose the next nominee? Listen here. I will tell you very simply, we won the election. Elections have consequences. We have the Senate. We have the White House. And 
We have a phenomenal nominee, respected by all. President's elected for four years. We're not elected for three years. I'm not elected for three years. So we have the Senate. We have a president. He's elected to the next During election. that period of time, during that period of time, we have an opening. I'm not elected for three years. I'm elected for four years. We're in the middle of an election already. The election has already started. Tens of thousands of people have already voted. And so the thing that should happen is we should wait. We should wait and see what the outcome of this election is, because that's the only way the American people get to express their view is by who they elect as president and who they elect as vice president. Those have been the positions since Justice Ginsburg died. Back to the poll now. After the debate, we asked, who do you believe would do a better job selecting a Supreme Court justice? Fifty four percent said Joe Biden. Forty six percent said President Trump. Back to Steve now, deep in the data, who's focused on this issue, the Supreme Court, and where might it change some minds, if anywhere? Yeah, and this is where the poll, I think, tells us something a little complicated and interesting because Biden wins the overall question, as you just showed. But how about voters who say they might change their minds? It's a small group, but it's an important group. And among voters who say they could still change their minds on this issue, by a more than two to one margin, they favor Trump. So this, the Supreme Court, could be one of those issues where Trump has an opportunity to get some people to hold their nose and vote for him, perhaps. Which explains why he's been on it. Oh, they have these same internals, do they not? Yeah, and this is an issue, obviously, the president being so immediate there in his reaction when the Ginsburg vacancy occurred to say, we are going to fill this and Republicans following him. I think they see some opportunity there as well. Makes sense. Steve, the candidates also debated race relations and keeping Americans safe. Those two things. Joe Biden focused on what we have in common. In fact, we're all Americans. The only way we're going to bring this country together is bring everybody together. There's nothing we cannot do if we do it together. We can take this on and we can defeat racism Vice in America. President, I mean, President Trump, sir. During the Obama-Biden administration, there was tremendous division. There was hatred. You look at uh, Ferguson. You look at you go to very many places. Look at Oakland. Look what happened in Oakland. Look what happened in Baltimore. Look what happened. On, frankly, it was more violent than what I'm even seeing now. Oh, my but Lord. the reason this is, is that the Democrats that Absolutely run these cities ridiculous. don't want to talk like you about law and order. Violent and you crime. You still haven't mentioned. Violent Are crime. you in favor of law and order? I'm in favor of law. You follow. Are you in favor of law and order? Go yes, ahead. Yes, I'm You ask a question. Let him finish. Law and order. Law and order. Let him. Law and order with justice where people. People get treated fairly. So race relations and community safety. After the debate, we asked, who do you believe would do a better job combating racism, combating discrimination? 57 percent said Joe Biden. 43 percent said the president. Now, on law and order, one of the president's focuses, remember, he said it over and over. We asked who would do a better job keeping our neighborhood safe on that question. 54 percent said Biden. 46 percent said Mr. Trump. Steve, we saw issues around protests and safety reshape some polling back over the summer. What about the latest on where those issues matter most and to whom right now? Yeah, I think here's something we're seeing when it gets to the topic of race. You have that combating racism and discrimination question. Just break this down demographically. Overwhelmingly, black voters favoring Biden on this coming out of the debate. Hispanic voters, about two thirds with Biden. Let me show you white voters. Now, now look, Trump has the bigger number here, 51 to 49 but only barely. And I think that's the most significant thing here, because white voters as a group in 2016, Trump won them in the election by nearly 20 points. But on this topic of racism, race relations, he barely edges out Biden here. It tells you white voters in particular, some who voted for Trump in 16, they get uneasy when the topic turns to race and Trump starts talking. We were supposed to get these polling results back around noon today, Steve. Instead, we got him back late in the day. And I wondered, as you went through, was there anything what Steve Kornacki said, ooh, that's surprising? You know, it, it was that Supreme Court number, to be honest with you, because there's been a lot of discussion around that. I think one thing we're definitely seeing, and you see it in these poll results, is the Democratic base is much more animated around the issue of the court now than really we've ever seen before. And I think that partly explains why overall Biden has the edge on that issue. But I think what that showed me on that topic is there are some voters out there who don't seem inclined to say they're with Trump right now, who fall into that, could still change their mind pool. Because on some issues like the Supreme Court, you see their tendency might be a little bit more to the right. So there could be a little bit of an opportunity around the edges there for the president. Battleground states matter the most. 
most, obviously, Steve. We're looking at Michigan, and it looks like from an aggregation of all the polls that Joe Biden is, is, is inching up. And you could just see the importance of Michigan, Shep. You just look at the electoral map right here. This is where it was in 2016. If Biden were to get Michigan, puts him at 248. If he were to get Pennsylvania as well, where the polls look similar, just those two states, he would be on the cusp of victory. Trump has a lot of slippage we're seeing in the polls in the Midwest. He's got to shore that up somehow or the electoral math gets very difficult for him. Steve Kornacki, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. This was fun. Thank you. We'll have you back often. Appreciate it. Two more polling questions ahead, and they're big ones. Listen now. Did the debate change your mind? And another one, who did a better job? The answers are very interesting, and they're coming up later in this news hour. Now, COVID watch. Cases are surging, doctors are warning, and the months ahead may test our nation and the world. It's getting worse, not better. Cases surging in half the states, kids back to school, and restaurants reopening. But is it safe? State of emergency, state of despair, California's wildfires growing, and fire fatigue sets in. And look at this, an epic high-speed drug bust on the high seas. The facts, the truth, the news with Shepard Smith, right here on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Stocks rally to close out the month and the quarter. Strong economic data helping there. And that's what's on the money tonight. Boeing 737 MAX was back in the air, but just for a test flight, grounded for 18 months after multiple fatal crashes. The head of the FAA himself in the cockpit, part of a promise to fly the jet before it's cleared for the rest of us. His take? I liked what I saw. No agreement on a relief deal for Americans. The Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says that that and the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi met today, both publicly saying they made progress, but... According to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, they are, quote, very, very far apart. And lots of Americans losing their jobs in the past 24 hours. Disney laid off almost 30,000 employees. Shell, Dow, and Marathon Petroleum shed thousands as well. Tomorrow, the major airlines could announce more cuts to their workforces. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 329. The S&P and the NASDAQ up less than 1%. It's 7.30 at CNBC Global Headquarters. It's the bottom of the hour. Time for the top of the news, and COVID is surging again. 26 states seeing a double-digit rise in new cases. 26 states. That's from Johns Hopkins. More than a third of those states are in the Midwest, a new hotspot for cases and hospitalizations. North Dakota local news reporting only 22 ICU beds are left in the entire state. And in Wisconsin, more people died of COVID-19 yesterday than on any day since the month of May. The number of people hospitalized at an all-time high. That's according to that state's Department of Health. The governor calling the spread unprecedented and near exponential. NBC's Jay Gray is on the top story at the bottom of the hour live in Green Bay. Jay, you were one of those overcrowded hospitals. You saw it today. Tell us about it. Shep, this hospital stretched to its limits right now, over 100 percent capacity and with more COVID patients than they've had at any time during the pandemic. And a very real concern, things are going to get worse here. Green Bay is a pretty quiet place, known mostly for its football and farms. But right now, there's a warning bell here. 
Yesterday, we were 130 percent above our usual capacity. Dr. Paul Casey runs the emergency department at Bellin Hospital. As COVID infections explode across the area, he says his facility is struggling, forced at times to treat patients in the hallways. Imagine being in a hallway, sick, and in view of the public or anybody else in the room. That's, that's not an optimum situation to take care of patients. The nurses and doctors have been hit hard, too. 170 in quarantine right now, unable to work because they've been exposed to the virus. Doctors and officials here blame the spike on frustration and virus fatigue. People just tired of wearing masks and staying home. Over the last few weeks, we've seen an increase in people carrying on business as usual, hosting parties, hitting the bars, and heading to uh, weddings. Folks, it isn't safe. Yeah, now look, we showed you some video from inside the hospital there, some hallways and empty beds. We wanted to show you where they've been forced to work. Understand, though, with HIPAA laws and out of respect for the patients, we didn't show you any people inside. City leaders here extremely worried about this weekend, Shep. They're fearful because President Trump's holding a rally at the airport here. Thousands expected to attend, and doctors say... This could be a super spreader event. They're very worried. Did, did you get a sense from Dr. Casey about why in that particular place it's spreading so fast? You know what? It's interesting because there's a college here and you think about the college kids and how that's happened across the country. What he says that he's seeing more often than not is that this is spreading within families, that families are sharing this with each other. They don't know they have the virus. They get together maybe seven, ten or more, and the virus spreads that way. Very disturbing when you think we're going into the holiday season. Jay Gray, live tonight. Thanks. In New York City, you can eat indoors again for the first time in more than six months. Today's the first day, and there are lots of restrictions if you can get a seat. It's limited. The law says only 25% capacity. Tables have to be six feet apart. Everybody who comes in gets a temperature check. When you're not seated or eating or drinking, you got to wear a face mask. And everybody has to sign in. They need contact information in case of an outbreak. Now, while restaurants open in the big city for indoor dining, cases are going up. Just this week, New York's positivity rate jumped from less than 1%, where it had been for like a month or more, to 3%. Two problem areas, specific neighborhoods in Brooklyn and Queens. If the bad COVID numbers hold for seven days, indoor dining in the Big Apple could end. CNBC's Contessa Brewer is live in Manhattan now. It's been a long time. I don't even remember eating indoors in Manhattan. How how are they adapting, Contessa? You know what? The restaurant owners, Chef, they want to celebrate, but come on, 25% max capacity? That's tough. Inside this restaurant, it translates to four tables. You can't really make it work. Known for its hanging bras and cheap beer, Jeremy's Ale House is ready to welcome customers back indoors. But the owner's not expecting to make a profit. If we cut down shifts a little bit, mess around, we'll survive. But they're not hiring more staff. Only a third of laid-off restaurant workers in the city have been rehired, according to the New York State Restaurant Association. And its survey shows 65% of restaurant owners in this state think they'll go belly up by the year's end without government assistance. It's too late for the Paris Cafe. The historic destination restaurant survived nearly 250 years through 9-11, Superstorm Sandy, but the coronavirus closures are now permanent. Others plan to reopen, just not yet. I think we have to be methodical about how we uh, open our restaurants. But with infection rates suddenly rising in New York City, not everyone's convinced. I am not going to be dining indoors for some time now. I just don't feel safe. The city will permit these outdoor tables to take over the streets year-round. It's relaxing restrictions regarding propane heaters outside. Here's the question. Is that enough to help these businesses survive through winter? Yeah, it's a good question. But I tell you what, everybody is, there's so many negative things about COVID. It's, It's made so many things awful. But as a New Yorker and a downtowner, this outdoor dining and outdoor music thing Don't let anybody tell you this place is dystopian. It is not. It is alive. And it's fantastic, isn't it? It it is. You look around here and the scene is lively and people want to enjoy each other's company. It is not a ghost town. It's not.
Contessa Brewer, CNBC's own. Thanks so much, Contessa. Appreciate it. No indoors for me for a while, not with the numbers going up. So big picture, where are we? In many parts of the country, the short answer is getting worse. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is here, CNBC medical contributor, former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration under President Trump. It must be so confusing for people, Dr. Gottlieb. We, we just get so many different mixed messages. And, and I'm wondering, is this the fall surge that we're seeing in the Midwest and Florida? And the, is this the one you've been talking about? Or are we not there yet? It could be. The answer is we don't know. It's really hard to make predictions out three weeks. We clearly have an expanding epidemic across the country in many parts of the country. Certainly in the Midwest, you're seeing cases go up in the South as well. And even here in the Northeast, you've seen a slight bump. Now, we expected cases to go up post-Labor Day because of the increased interactions after Labor Day. And we expect cases to go up in the fall and the winter. Whether or not this is a bump and we're going to see things start to level off or this is a continuation of a broader trend and we're going to see cases surge heading into the fall and the winter, it's too early to say. I think there's a lot of risk that we're going to see significant growth in cases, though, as we head into the winter. This is a respiratory pathogen that would typically circulate in the fall and the winter. There's a large component of the population that haven't had it, and so there's a lot of vulnerable people out there left to be infected by this. Looking for the silver lining, though, the death rates are not nearly as high as they were back in the spring. And I'm just wondering, is that because we're a lot better at it, which we are, or is it because death rates are still a lagging indicator? Do we know? We're a lot better at it. Um, death rates are a lagging indicator, but we're a lot better at treating this. In-hospital mortality probably has been cut in half if you look at what's happening in the hospitals, if you look what happened when we had the epidemic in the South. And that's a combination of better treatment, better approaches to care, and also some better therapeutics. The use of steroids in patients who are severely ill, requiring oxygen, um, anticoagulation, using blood thinners. A lot of patients were getting blood clots, and some were dying of those blood clots. Better approaches to care. We're not intubating patients as aggressively. We're using 100% non-rebreathers rather than intubating them. We're finding that mm. improves outcomes in patients. There's a whole host of things that we're doing differently now that are improving outcomes. I think that we'll continue to make gains in, in reducing mortality against this disease. We're going to see the introduction probably of some therapeutics this fall and winter that could make a significant yeah. impact on outcomes for patients. And so it's improving. Yeah, you mentioned therapeutics, but the president keeps talking about vaccines. He says they're coming soon and then there'll be almost immediate distribution. Is that true? Well, I think a vaccine, I'm on the board of Pfizer, which is one of the companies with the advanced vaccine development program. I think a vaccine is really a 2021 event. We might have a vaccine available for a select population here in 2020, probably older people, people who are in nursing homes, maybe frontline healthcare workers under a best case scenario. If the data from these pivotal clinical trials that are underweight right now shows that they're safe and effective. But the ability to have a vaccine widely available to the population is probably something that we'll see in the second quarter of 2021, probably later in the second quarter. But we may see some therapeutics come onto the market. There's been positive data from companies like Lilly and Regeneron around antibody-based drugs that could be effective mm -hmm. against this disease for people who, have, who are hospitalized with it um, and are at risk for bad outcomes. And so I think those therapeutics could come onto the market sometime this year, and they could be meaningful. Well, that would be fantastic. One last thing, doctor. College kids are back, and my old man, my dad, is not young. <laughs> he lives in a college town, and he's like, those kids are going to go home and take it back to their older members of their family, and a month from now is going to be ugly. How far off is he? It's a risk. I think the colleges, a lot of them have in place testing programs, so they're going to test kids before they send them home. That should be helpful. And I think the reality is that once kids go home for fall break, they're not going to be able to come back. Probably they won't be back on college campuses until the spring, if you believe that we're likely to see cases continue to go up heading into the fall and the winter. And you do. I, I believe that. I think that it's a, going to be a difficult fall and the winter. We have one more cycle probably that we have to get through with this virus before we can start to get to the other side of this. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you for the guidance. Appreciate it. Folks in California are told, stay on alert. The fires again, more evacuations as high winds fuel the worst fire season in state history. We're live in Calistoga, where tonight crews are keeping a very close eye on a fire burning there. And two Los Angeles police officers shot sitting in their patrol car now after a lengthy manhunt and arrest. The facts, the truth, the news with Shepard Smith, back in 90 seconds.
California wildfires forcing thousands of families out of their homes. Today, fire officials issuing a new evacuation order in Napa County, north of San Francisco. Plain and simple, people told to get out. This is the worst fire season ever recorded in California. Take a look at this map. Fires are really burning up and down that state. And right now, in wine company, wine country, the grim facts from fire officials, at least close to 50,000 people forced to evacuate. 80 homes and buildings burned straight to the ground. More than 22,000 structures still under threat. Close to 50,000 acres turned to ash. And the weather, it's not helping. And these are people, not just property. NBC's Miguel Almaguer is in Napa Valley tonight. Tell me what you've seen tonight, Miguel. Well, Shep, it's really difficult to wrap your head around the destruction here. We're seeing scenes like this play out all across Napa Valley. We're here in Calistoga and in nearby Napa. This is just one winery that's been destroyed. More than a dozen have been either hit by fire. In terms of properties, we're talking well over 200 properties that have been destroyed. That's just the official count. That number is certain to grow in the days ahead. Firefighters are still battling multiple blazes. They're concerned about two major wildfires that are threatening Napa Valley and the Sonoma Valley, obviously the heart of wine country here in Northern California. Officials are doing all they can to beat back the flames, but that pesky weather, the hot temperatures and powerful whipping winds are expected to kick back up over the next couple of days. So they'll have their work cut out for them tonight. Tens of thousands of people have been forced from their homes. Upwards of 20,000 homes remain in jeopardy of burning down, Shep. Miguel Almaguer live for us. Thank you. An arrest and attempted murder charges today in the brutal ambush of two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies in Compton earlier this month. That shooting caught on camera as the suspect walked up to a squad car and just started firing. Both deputies shot in the head while they sat inside. L.A. District Attorney filing attempted murder charges today against Deontay Lee Murray. He pleaded not guilty. Both deputies are now out of the hospital and recovering. But the sheriff says they both face more surgeries and a long road to recovery. The recordings of the grand jury proceedings in the Breonna Taylor case delayed now. 20 hours worth of recordings were supposed to be released today. But the Kentucky attorney general filed a late motion asking to wait a week. Daniel Cameron says he needs that time to keep witnesses names from getting out. But a judge giving him two days instead. One of the grand jurors filed a motion on Monday demanding the transcripts go public. That juror claims that the prosecutor misled the public about what happened in that room. The prosecutor said he never recommended murder charges because the officers acted in self-defense. A scare on the space station, and Meghan Markle suffers a setback as we go round the world in 80 seconds. United Kingdom, a royal loss. London's high court ruling against Meghan Markle in her case involving the British tabloid, the Mail on Sunday. Markle sued over articles printed, including parts of a handwritten letter she sent to her estranged father. The tabloid arguing the Duchess had intended some private details to become public. Earlier this year, the couple announced they were quitting royal duties and moving to North America. France, the government's not clowning around. France is banning these wild animals in circuses and marine parks within the next few years. From lions to dolphins, nearly 400,000 people in the country signed a petition to get a referendum on animals. Spain, crime doesn't pay on land or out at sea. Check out this high-speed boat chasing down a luxury yacht full of marijuana. Spanish police arresting nine drug smugglers and seizing more than 38 tons of cash. They say it's their largest drug bust ever on the high seas. Outer space. Houston, we don't have a problem. The International Space Station detected a growing air leak. But after searching for several weeks, they successfully traced the source of the problem. These astronauts can now breathe a sigh of relief as they go around the world in 80 seconds. Well, like a lot of places, COVID-19 dealt Vegas a heck of a blow. The Strip shut down and their new football stadium just sitting there empty. But there's hope in Sin City. CNBC's Jane Wells is there. A casino is reopening. What? 
Uh, Shep, you can't keep Sin City down. You know, despite an economic economic fallout, you got zero conventions, zero shows. You got that football stadium with zero fans. But coming up, we talked to everybody from cabbies to Elvis as the Strip tries to put the Viva back into Las Vegas. Ah, Las Vegas. Crowds of tourists and gamblers are the lifeblood of Sin City. So when the pandemic hit, it crippled the economy, left the locals in a world of hurt. But the city is trying to stage a comeback in the age of COVID. CNBC's Jane Wells now from Vegas. At the Viva Las Vegas wedding chapel, Elvis is lonesome. Okay, Jane. These are all the cancellations of all the weddings that we've had come in. Ron Dakar has owned this place for over two decades. To be honest with you, we've lost about $1.2 million in business. Las Vegas shut down for 10 weeks last spring and has yet to fully reopen. There hasn't been a single convention since March. The losses are staggering. We think that's about $8.5 billion so far. Las Vegas is no stranger to setbacks, whether the Great Recession, which turned the nation's hottest housing market cold, causing commercial projects to go bankrupt, or the mass shooting in 2017, which broke the city's heart. But COVID is different. In the recession that hit in 2009, the city lost approximately 200,000 jobs over two and a half years. In 2020, it lost 250,000 jobs in just two months. There's no traffic. I mean, you drive down, you look. You look at there's nothing moving. There's nothing going on here. Mark Kramer has been driving a cab for 27 years. No shows, no nightclubs, nothing. I can't imagine having a $2 billion stadium and nobody's allowed in it. There are signs things are improving. While international travel is still near zero, domestic flights are slowly filling up. Traffic is still down two-thirds on weekdays and almost half on weekends. But Vegas is betting on a bounce back. Construction of new hotels continues, along with a billion-dollar expansion of the convention center. We're hopeful that in February we can open this building. And you, you take shots to be a And we even witnessed a Star Wars wedding at Ron Dakar's chapel. Proving that the virus isn't the only thing airborne, love is still in the air. And fortunately, Vader always wears a mask. Ah, the strongest force. Uh, the force is strong with that couple. <clears throat> uh, and I haven't even been drinking yet. That'll come later. Okay, one hopeful sign. Uh, the Park MGM, which been, has been closed since March, reopened today. Uh, new numbers show that while August tourism was down 57% compared to a year ago. That's a little better than it was in July. But, Shep, this is a, a city that runs on conventions. They haven't had any since March. They're not planning to have any until maybe the end of January. Ooh. But that will be a big one. The world of concrete. Back to you. <laughs> Positivity rate, though, Jane, it's up around 80 percent. They got to be a little bit concerned. Uh, uh, yeah, we're talking about 7.8 percent. They are, but the tourists aren't. Those who are actually coming here are not. Masks are everywhere. The casinos take your temperature. And I would say there are as many hand sanitation stations as there are slot machines. Jane, great to see you. It's been a while. Yep. Jane, yeah, good to see you, my friend. Jane Wells live in Vegas. A coronavirus outbreak dealing the first real blow to the NFL season. The league postponing Sunday's game between the Steelers and the Titans. Titans suspended in-person activities completely yesterday. Three players, five employees tested positive, And today, a fourth player positive. The league moving the game to Monday or Tuesday, they hope, so there's time for more testing. Players are not in a bubble in the NFL like those in the NBA and the NHL. And Major League Baseball announced the World Series will have in-person fans. (laughs) They've been keeping stadiums empty. More than 11,000 people will get to attend the NLCS and the World Series in Arlington, Texas. Let's go, Yanks! Who won the debate last night? You have spoken, and the results are not even close. The answer to that question from our CNBC polling, plus headlines as we head into primetime. That's next. Promise more polling data from the debate, and here it is from our CNBC Change Research poll. They did the debate. Change, uh, change your vote, your answer here. 
2%. Did the debate change your vote? 2% say yes. The debate changed my mind. 98% say no. That's how set voters are with their preference. And at the end of the day, no matter how you plan to vote, who did a better job? 53% say former Vice President Joe Biden. 29% say President Trump. Biden wins in our poll by a 24-point spread. Two minutes to prime time, and here's what's topping the news at this hour. The commission that organizes presidential debates promising to make some changes after last night. A source close to the commission tells NBC News they're considering the ability to cut off a candidate's mic when they interrupt and break the rules. No deal, at least not yet, on a coronavirus relief. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin meeting to face-to-face for the first time in two weeks to negotiate. At least four people now confirmed dead as wildfires devastate parts of Napa Valley. Unseasonably hot and dry weather and powerful winds have been whipping up the flames. And that's the news from CNBC. It's great to be back. So much has changed since I took a break. Foremost, racial injustice and social unrest have escalated and the worldwide pandemic has rocked us. It's altered our lives, stressed our families, ravaged our communities, killed our loved ones, and changed the course of human events. Misinformation, disinformation impede our ability to recover. Income inequality makes recovery for some much harder. Here each night, we'll cover these issues through journalists and experts, not opinions and pundits. As we approach the vote, our nation is divided. Two sides, fears and dreams, deserve thoughtful, honest reporting without favor or fear. Our mission is to deliver the facts in context and with perspective. Soon we'll be with you from our new state-of-the-art studio. It's coming together just as we have for the news. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next on CNBC. You've been listening to the CNBC podcast, The News with Shepard Smith. You can always catch us live weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.